Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues, and most importantly, in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Uh, do, I want to ask our listeners: Do you ever think about what uh, your Google search results say about you? Uh, what data can tell us about the issues in our society, like racism, depression, child abuse, and some of our deepest fears and insecurities? Um, so many years after the emergence of the term big data, we truly need a fresh perspective to understand ourselves uh, through data, through machine learning, all those big phrases. And our guest today will give us this fresh insight. His name is says Stevens Davidowitz. He is the author of New York Times bestseller "Everybody Lies: Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are." Which was published in 2017 and one of the Economist magazine's books of the year, uh, says has worked as a data scientist at Google and is currently a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. Thank you so much for joining us today, Seth. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, why don't we just start with your book, "Everybody Lies"?、Uh, you use people's Google search data to show、uh, how people lie in surveys and how we can better understand humans through Google searches.、Uh, what are some of your findings?、Uh, what motivated you to write this book? Yeah. So the idea is that if you the traditional way to understand people is you ask them questions, you conduct basically a survey. So you ask、uh, what they want to do, why they do the things they do,、uh, what they're going to do in the future,、uh, what they've done in the past. And one problem with this approach is that people can lie to surveys. Frequently, they tell not the truth, but what they think will impress. The person asking the survey, or the thing that will make them feel good about themselves, but the thesis of the book is that on Google, people are really honest. That they say when they're typing in that little white box,、uh, they tend to say what they're really thinking. So if you ask people in parts of the country where it's hard to be gay in Mississippi and Tennessee, are you gay?、Uh, much fewer men answer yes to that question in a survey, but just about as many men search for gay porn. So that's kind of an example of. Maybe more honest approach on Google、uh, when people have the incentive to get the information they need. So, could you give us some more examples of of some of the interesting things、uh, you find out? For example,、uh, you have some very fascinating、uh, finding on the anti-Muslim sentiment.、Uh, one of your New York Times op-eds actually led to some changes in President Obama's approach to deal with this issue. Would you mind telling us about that incident? Yeah, so I, I don't know if listeners remember the San Bernardino attack in December 2015. Two Muslim Americans shot and killed 14 people, and immediately after they announced the names of the shooters, that they had Muslim-sounding names, there was an explosion of anti-Muslim searches on Google. So people searched things like "I hate Muslims" or "Muslims must die" or "kill Muslims."、Uh, really, really nasty, horrible searches. And these searches are so weird. Why is someone even searching this on Google? Do we even care that people make these searches? Well, it turns out we do. This is research with actually a former Princeton student, Evan Soltas, and we found that on weeks when there are more of these searches, there are more hate crimes against Muslims. So back in、uh, during this time period of Barack Obama was president, he decided to give a speech to the nation to address not just the problem of terrorism, but also the problem of anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, which he realized had gotten perhaps out of control in the United States. So、uh, it was kind of a classic Obama speech, very well written, very well spoken. He talked about the responsibility that we have as Americans to not give in to fear, to appeal to freedom, the responsibility of Americans not to hate people based on their religious background, the responsibility of Americans 
to accept everyone in this country, uh, no matter their background. And uh, all the serious sources thought this was a great speech. Uh, Boston Globe said great speech. LA Times said great speech. Newsweek said great speech. New York Times, great speech. Uh, so we actually looked, you can look at Google search data minute by minute, of what happened to these anti-Muslim searches during and after the speech. And we found those searches, these nasty searches towards Muslims, they didn't drop, they didn't stay the same. They went way up. So everything Obama was saying, it seemed to just make people angrier, uh, feel more animosity, more hatred towards Muslim Americans. So that's kind of a depressing conclusion uh, that a well-meaning speech by a well-meaning man can backfire towards its main aim, which is calming an angry mob. But there was something a little more optimistic at the end of the speech, Obama said, uh, we have to remember that Muslim Americans are friends and neighbors. They are sports heroes, and they're the men and women who will die for our country. And immediately after he says this, a huge rise in searches for Muslim athletes and Muslim soldiers. In fact, for the first time in many years, the top descriptor of Muslims on Google wasn't Muslim extremists or Muslim terrorists. It was Muslim athletes followed by Muslim soldiers, and these kept the top spot for days afterwards. So. Uh, what we suggested in this New York Times column was that there's one approach that doesn't work that, if anything, may backfire. That's lecturing people, giving them information they've been told a thousand times, telling them what they should do. What's maybe more effective is subtly provoking their curiosity, giving them new information, changing the way they perceive this group that's causing them so much rage. Uh, and we published this in New York Times. I don't think it's totally crazy when you publish a New York Times column that powerful people read it maybe even people in Obama's staff, because a few days later, he gave another speech in a Baltimore mosque. Again, it got a lot of attention. Again, it was on national TV. But this time, his strategy was totally different. He didn't lecture people at all. He didn't use the word responsibility once or the word should once. Instead, he really uh, doubled down on the curiosity strategy. He said how Muslim Americans are friends and neighbors and sports heroes and uh, soldiers and uh, entrepreneurs and scientists, and Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Quran in his office, and the first mosque was in uh, North Dakota, and Muslim Americans built the skyscraper of Chicago. Just all this kind of new information that may change people's perspective on Muslim Americans and their place in our country's history. And in the minutes and hours after this speech, uh, many of the nasty searches about Muslims, they actually dropped. So uh, the conclusion that I want everyone to take from this is that I've solved hatred in the world. Uh, for my two little studies. No, obviously there's a lot more work that needs to be done and there needs to be more research on this topic, but I think it does show the power of these data sets uh, to really turn something as chaotic as how to calm an angry, angry mob into a real science. That's a fascinating example. I'm really curious, uh, has the government adopted a more data-driven approach to policymaking? I mean, based on what I heard, it's the Obama administration should be pretty impressed with the results, right? So why are they immediately going to Google and say, give us more search data and, you know, we should be making more policies or decide more of our speeches based on those um, data. I mean, I mean, that sounds to me like a pretty logical next step for them, right? I think data is becoming more important in politics. One, one way I've heard that uh, politicians use this data is to understand whether a story has legs. That's a phrase. Is the story, uh, are people continuing to follow the story or not following the story? And that can de determine whether they need to address it. So if there's, uh, if, if people are continually Googling, uh, searching for a story a few days after it broke, uh, the, pol the president or whoever the, the story relates to may want to address it. If people search for it when the story breaks, but then stop searching for it, the politician may just assume it'll blow over. 
uh, I guess since we're already on the topic of policymaking and data and government, uh, I would just dig in a little bit further. You mentioned that the two big dangers that are possible uh, are, are empowered corporations and empowered governments. Uh, what are some of the ways that you think governments or big corporations could abuse data? And do, do you are you an advocate for, for example, Obama administration taking more personal data from from Google or from whatever other platform that is out there, and then use that to to do policy making? I think there are definitely concerns. I mean, there are some good uses. Knowing where health outbreaks are located uh, could be really helpful. Uh, there are definitely danger. There de- there there are things that that may sound good in theory, but could be but could uh, be dangerous. Uh, one example is potentially how do we use this data to stop crimes? It's been shown that many criminals kind of uh, make their intentions clear in their Google searches. They search for ways to murder someone uh, before actually committing a murder. And there's obviously a question that raises, which is uh, what do we do with this information? What should, should the government intervene if they know that someone's been searching uh, for information on how to commit a murder? Uh, I think there's there's the, the I think right now the general approach is that governments use this data after the fact. So if someone's a, a suspect and they have a search warrant, they'll go back and look through someone's searches and sometimes use that as evidence in court, but they don't use it prior to an attack. Uh, Do as you far as have what, a stance on this type of uh, normative discussion? I what? mean, I think I think uh, I'd be wary using this data before before an attack. So partly part of the problem. Part of the issue is that a lot of people make really nasty searches and never go through with the attack. So uh, a surprising number of people, and this is kind of horrible, search something like, I want to kill my wife or I want to kill my husband. And then more people search this than actually kill wives or kill husbands. So uh, I think it's, you know, you don't, it's not illegal in the United States to have a nasty thought. And we wouldn't want to arrest someone just because someone expressed a nasty thought on Google, uh, partly because. Uh, partly because some of these people aren't actually thinking that. They might just be curious what comes up when someone makes that search. They may be doing a research paper, but partly also because even if they are thinking that, again, it's not illegal to have a murderous thought, to have a really nasty thought. Uh, It's not illegal and shouldn't be illegal. Got you. Uh, You call Google the digital truth serum. Does that mean Google can understand us better than ourselves? Uh, I, I mean, there are scholars like... Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who, who wrote his book, uh, 21 Lessons for 21st Century, that, you know, we no longer search for information, we, we just Google, and we increasingly rely on Google for answers, and our ability to search information for ourselves is sort of diminishes, and uh, the idea of truth is not de- defined by top results that Google gives us. So, do you think Google poses a threat to us in any way? Uh, very curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's def- I think it's definitely Google has a lot of power uh, because whatever they show uh, is what a lot of people are going to think about an issue, and uh, we've been seeing that recently with questions of you know do you do you what do you show in autocomplete? So for a while there was a time where Google actually changed its autocomplete because a story broke where if you say are Jews, Google completed that phrase with are Jews evil because a lot of people are making searches are Jews evil. And uh, we actually did a study on this. We found that Google, after that story broke, changed it so they no longer had that autocomplete. And after this, there was about a 10% drop in searches for Are Jews Evil. 
So a lot of people who, if Google had included Arjus Evil in the autocomplete, would have made that search and then gotten potentially some anti-Semitic websites uh, weren't exposed to that. What didn't have that question because Google didn't suggest that question, weren't exposed to some of the anti-Semitic websites that can come up when you make such a search. So there are really all kinds of questions that come up. What happens if someone searches for racist material? I talk about that a lot in the book. People who search things like N-word jokes. Uh, should we just indulge people with for, with these jokes? Should Google indulge people with these jokes? Should they uh, give them lessons on not hating people of different races? Should they give them uh, civil rights pamphlets? I mean, uh, there are all kinds of questions that come up with this data. What happens if someone makes a search for suicide? Uh, Google right now, I think correctly, uh, puts the suicide hotline right at the top of the website when someone makes this search. Uh, I think that's the right the right the right answer. But uh, you know, I, I think all these questions that so many people use Google in such uh, charged or sensitive moments that uh, we really have to think uh, through what what what's shown when people make these searches. And maybe it's not okay that only a few people in Google get to make these decisions. So probably the discussion here about whether Google can or, or should be giving you certain suggestions or taking down certain stuffs, that's not just a tech debate, right? That's a that's not an econ debate. That's not a data debate. That's like also a philosophical, moral, ethic debate. So, do you have any views on how we can involve a greater community in discussing those issues? And where do you do you see those issues being resolved anytime soon? Because a lot of conservatives are criticizing big tech giants uh, today and saying how they're basically being moral arbitrators and playing the role of judging who gets to be advertised and, and who gets deplatformed. Um, so I don't know. So what, what do you think of all those uh, normative ethical debates? I think they're important. And yeah, I think there's got, there are, there have, have, I think the government's going to have to play a role. At some point, there's going to there have to be some laws about how companies decide uh, what's shown. I mean, uh, there's a recent example. Facebook was allowing people to make advert to to target advertisements based on people's race and gender and age for employment opportunities and housing opportunities, which is actually illegal. And now Facebook is no longer allowed to do that, and they're pl- paying a fine for that. Uh, but I think uh, I think it's really important for the for the government at, at many points to. Uh, to set policies here. I think one of the problems is that the that the, the tech companies are kind of ahead of the policymakers here and they have a lot more information and their computer scientists are maybe more talented. And, and a lot of a lot of what's happening is beyond human comprehension. A lot of uh, what is shown when you go to Google or Facebook is driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, and isn't really understood by, by, by human beings. So it becomes that much harder to regulate it. But I don't think that means we shouldn't regulate it. Uh, I think there still is an, an obligation for society to uh, to to use some regulation here because the impact of these sites is so enormous. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how government should regulate the tech giants today? I mean, the potential of data is infinite, but uh, we can all agree that it must be handled quite like with ethical means. And and so, how would you comment on the way data is being used by tech giants and big corporations today? Because you just gave the Facebook example. Uh, I, I don't know if you think there are particular companies that you think are handling data ethics very well right now and particular companies that aren't. I think there are massive issues here. So one of my one of my big concerns is that uh, some of these sites, maybe the new cigarettes, where they're just incredibly addictive and there's some there's increasing evidence that using social media 
makes people less happy and more depressed. Uh, but people find it really difficult to stop using social media. And one of the reasons for that is because uh, social media companies have data scientists and computer scientists working uh, around the clock, building tools to make their sites uh, more addictive. They run thousands of uh, A-B tests every year. They test different versions of their sites and they see which version gets people staying on the site longer. And they, when they do this over and over again, eventually you have among the most addictive products in human history. Uh, so I think that's another area we may want to regulate. How do we uh, make these things less addictive? Do you have any policy proposals or, or some steps that you have in mind that could further ensure the ethical use of data? Uh, and also, how would we define ethical use, use of data? Uh, I think it's it's a wild west right now, and I, I don't I don't I don't have great proposals myself or know of great proposals except you know I, I'd encourage people to read on these topics of some of the problems. So one book I really enjoyed is the book Weapons of Math Destruction, uh, which which kind of outlines uh, many use cases, problematic use cases of companies using data, and uh, it doesn't really necessarily outline solutions to the problem, and I don't think. Again, I, I don't. I haven't really read anything uh, that that I think uh, really nails this problem. But but I think people are are becoming more aware of this problem, and more researchers are devoting attention to it. Uh, and hopefully, we can uh, come up with some uh, remedies. Got you. Uh, before we ask you more uh, policy-related questions and about data, those broad questions, I want to go back to your book. So in your book, you wrote about this uh, funny encounter between you and former Treasury Secretary and Harvard President. Lauren Summers, who asked to meet you in person to talk about your research. And after like an hour of conversation, he asked you at the end uh, whether you can predict the stock market. So how, how was that encounter? What was your answer? Well, first of all, Larry Summers is a very, very impressive guy and a nice guy and a brilliant guy. Uh, part of it was he's trying to help out my career. And actually, you know, if I even if I just wrote a paper in, on, in finance and predicting the stock market, that would be helpful for my career. So. <laughs> Uh, I wasn't, it's not like he was just trying to get rich. And, <laughs> and, right. but, uh, I think, you know, I think we, we tried a, a, f a few approaches and uh, I think the difficulty is stock market's tough. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's impossible, but I, I don't think, you know, just using public data uh, to get an edge is tough because the, some of the smartest minds in the world are crunching these numbers every second. And sometimes you have an advantage, but then uh, someone else finds the advantage that you have and it disappears. Uh, so, uh, you really, uh, I think it's, 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 a, a pretty big challenge. I think most of the people who win with stock in the stock market have some sort of non-public information, uh, either some data set that isn't public or, uh, some thing on the, you know, on the borderline of inside information. That's how, from my, from my experience, most of the successful, uh, stock market analysts, uh, operate. Why, why do you think, why can't we predict the st stock market? I mean, do you think we'll ever reach a point one day where big data, machine learning, or AI, those could help us see the future better? It may be. So the stock market may be a chaotic system. So there are certain systems, like the weather, where even if you knew all possible information, uh, you couldn't really predict how everything's going to play out because any tiny change uh, would lead to... Uh, would uh, any kind of tiny perturbation, perturbation uh, would lead to an enormous change in final outcomes. 
And the stock market may be like that, a chaotic system, uh, which data is less helpful in helping us understand, at least in the far, far future. There are obviously certain things, you know, you, ways you can use data. People have crunched, they've taken pictures of cars outside parking lots in Walmart to see whether Walmart, to predict whether Walmart's having a good season or a bad season, or you can, uh, you can collaborate with credit card companies to analyze their data to see whether a particular product is selling more or less than usual. So there definitely are ways to use data to make predictions for particular companies, but the stock market as a whole, uh, you know, many years out, I think may be a chaotic system and may not be amenable to machine learning or artificial intelligence, let alone data science. What about AI? I mean, people talk about artificial intelligence so much these days, um, and they often portray a more dystopian future, you know, where AI could gain consciousness, where AI understands us better than ourselves, all that. Um, so what's your thoughts on AI? Do you think it could be a problem for us anytime soon? I mean, that seems to be a step further than just using data analytics, right? Yeah, so, I mean, I think... I think people are a little in the field I'm in, which is social sciences, people have become way too obsessed with artificial intelligence. I think artificial intelligence is really important when you have an incredibly difficult problem with just enormous amounts of data, you know, trying to see uh, whether a photo contains a cat or trying to drive a car. That's where artificial intelligence really is necessary. I think, uh, you know, everyone in a lot of economists and psychologists all of a sudden the hot term is machine learning and artificial intelligence and frequently for the type of data we're analyzing which tend to be relatively small uh, simple regression models uh, tend to be good enough i don't think you gain as much as some people seem to think you gain by using machine learning or artificial intelligence but it kind of became a hot buzzword um speaking of which do you think that's kind of the future of scholarly pursuits whether it's social sciences um political theory or economics that you just need machine learning and data analytics definitely data definitely data analytics uh yeah i think uh i think kind of every field is going to be to some degree revolutionized by data analysis uh and big data analysis i think you know some of the methodologies in sociology and psychology uh i think are a little becoming outdated i don't know that you know, these little experiments of 40 undergrads are the best way to understand human society when there's now so much information uh, available second, second by second in any tiny of the corner of the world uh, based on people's uh, digital footprint. I think uh, more, of this, more of our understanding of humanity is going to come from uh, the, and, you know, making sense of, 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 that kind of, of that data than uh, kind of these small survey experiments uh, that have kind of dominated uh, many parts of the social science for many decades. Got you. How how far away do you think we are from reaching a future where, you know, that type of futuristic um, scene that we all have in our minds where machines understand us very well, algorithms help us take care of everything? Like Because some of my friends who interned and worked in some of those tech giants told me that we're still very far away from, you know, having AI fully understanding us where being very um, well-versed in using machine learning or data analytics to solve problems. So, so as a data scientist, as a researcher, how far are we in this sort of research and utilization of data? How much work do, you, do we still need to do? 
I think it just depends on the area. There may be some health conditions where we'll find out, you know, we'll dramatically improve our models of understand of preventive medicine, understanding problems uh, much earlier by kind of uh, tracking people's inter you know internal body parts continuously. I think you could definitely have big insights in that area uh, in a, in a relatively short time frame. Uh, you know, so some areas are probably uh, cars should be you know self-driving cars should come pretty soon. So some areas uh, may, may be uh, more complicated. You know, try could you uh, use machine learning or AI to predict, to choose people's spouses better than they choose their own spouses? Uh, it's possible, I don't know. It would be an interesting project. Uh, I think in general, the idea that people make horrible decisions, that algorithms can improve people's decisions is, uh, probably true and I think uh, even just just like there, there's so much new information now from all this data you know I talk, I talk about a lot of it in the in the in everybody lies in the book uh, you know where the best place to raise kids are you know they've analyzed tax data for many gener for many decades and seen okay what what wh how do kids end up uh, when when they live in this block of the country versus when they live in that block of the country so now parents can kind of use that information to decide the best place to raise their kids so I think that's kind of a, an area right away we can have an imp we can have an impact. I'm kind of working on that in the next book to kind of just inform people of a lot of the big findings uh, that can maybe lead to better decision making that really are only available thanks to the enormous data sets that have been accumulated uh, over the last uh, you know five to ten years. That was a very interesting example about uh, parents uh, finding using data to find which block the best uh, to raise their kids. So I guess my follow up question for that. Uh, example is, uh, do you think the benefits um, or innovations created by data will be spread out evenly uh, among everybody, the public, the elites? Do you think it will create more inequality? Or because it sounds like if a certain group of people have more data than the other people and they control this data, they can potentially arrive at better decisions and results uh, and, and keep benefiting themselves and preventing others from getting those uh, uh, benefits as well. Um, so, is there a vision of inequality or a vision of yeah, more equality? Yeah. I mean, I think it's it can be problematic because uh, you know there's going to be inequality based on just education levels and information levels and how much people read. Uh, because I think uh, you know again, it's always been the case, right? There's always been more information for insiders, so. Uh, you know, when when my mother was growing up uh, in inner city Bronx, uh, I think one day she just showed up to school and they just gave her a test and said, "Oh, today you're taking this," and it was the SATs, and she had no idea that you know that that, that what this test was, why she was taking it, and you know didn't score all that highly and went to City College, uh, which was a, a good but not spectacular university. And you compare that to my experience, where I uh, spent many months with an SAT tutor and uh, you know bought books from Princeton Review on how to crack the SAT and uh, slept well the night before the SAT and had a great big breakfast the day morning of the SAT <laughs> uh, and then uh, did did much better than my mother and ended up going to Stanford and have kind of been reaping the benefits of that ever since. Uh, so there, there's always been a difference, you know, and there are still many kids in the United States who have experiences more like my mother's than, than my own. Uh, so there's always been kind of inequality in information. 
and some people uh, have some people have always benefited uh, from kind of having more more knowledge of good decisions. But I don't know if that's going to get better or worse uh, over time. You know, gotcha. I'd like to think that. Uh, maybe you know, one force making it better is there's just it's easier to get that information so you can just you know, Google or uh, you know go, go on Reddit or uh, go on Quora and find out much more uh, you know much much more uh, you know actually the, the neighborhoods to raise your parent that's publicly available information you can actually just Google it online but I, th I think uh, certain parents are probably going to be more likely to download that spreadsheet than other parents so. Got you. So it's very hard to say whether this information revolution will extremely benefit more or less uh, of the people. So uh, you have a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, negative findings in in your book, like uh, you know, prevalence of racism, what people think before they committed suicide, etc. Um, was there anything hopeful from your findings? And also, do you have a more optimistic or pessimistic view on on the future of our society uh, based on uh, all those years of looking at data uh, and examining those issues. I mean, I've always been a little bit more a pessimist uh, than an optimist. Which That's is great. I'd love to hear those thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, something I'm working on with my uh, cognitive therapist right now. So uh, maybe I should. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't agree necessarily. That the book was so pessimistic. I think. You know, it was kind of shining a light on some problems we have in society, but also pointing to some solutions to these problems and show. And it was very opt. It was maybe pessimistic about human beings, but optimistic about data. So, I mean, you just read a history book. You know that human beings are capable of dark things and dark attitudes and dark behaviors. Uh, and I think some. Of, I think we've forgotten some of that because in modern society. Uh, it's become politically incorrect to admit to some of these attitudes. Uh, so maybe, so I think, you know, shining some light on them, showing that they still exist, showing that they still cause problems, and then maybe using this data to research ways to fix them, as the anti-Muslim uh, study suggested, uh, I think is uh, a good thing and something I'm optimistic about. So you're kind of pessimistic about human nature, uh, but very optimistic about um, what data can help us correct some of the f faults we have. Uh, what are some of the ways that we can expect in the future in terms of how data will be used? What are some of the obstacles will come along the way? I would love to hear your thoughts on the future of data. Uh, well, I think just more and more decision-making is going to be made by data. Uh, you know, the health stuff I talked about, kind of monitoring people's internal measures uh, over time and kind of finding problems before they even know about them, preventive medicine. I, I talked about a study uh, where they tracked users over time, their search symptoms, and could predict who might have risk factors for pancreatic cancer. Uh, so I think, you know, kind of stepping in and finding patterns, problematic patterns before people realize them is a big, is a big area. Uh, I think kind of every business is gonna go through its money ball Revolution. So Moneyball was this book written about how baseball teams use data analysis to uh, kind of outsmart their competitors. It started with the Oakland A's, but then uh, the Boston Red Sox use these methodologies, and now pretty much every team relies heavily on statistical analysis. And the same things happened uh, 
in basketball, football, other sports. I think it's going to happen in every field, in the music industry, in the advertising industry, and in, in finance, it's kind of already happened. And uh, any 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 industry uh, is going to rely much more heavily on data, and kind of companies that aren't relying on data are going to fall behind. So, I guess that go- goes back to my uh, first question: whether um, companies that have already have an existing market power will use data to strengthen their position, and that's it will be harder and harder for small players to come up because that's what we saw in the Moneyball case, right? Because the the well, no, the money, the the theme of Moneyball was the opposite that uh, the Oakland A's had no budget, so they had to find a creative way to win. Right, but but later when the other teams discovered that there's data, Red Sox yeah. and Yankees, they had way bigger bank accounts and they quickly yeah. catched up and they took over uh, the dominance very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so so doesn't that sort of show well, that sure you can use data, but at the end of the day, it's the big guys who win. I, I think there's another, yeah, I think it's even more true in, in, in other companies, in other industries, because sometimes just having more data. So the Yankees have more money, but they don't really have any more data uh, than the other teams. Gotcha. Uh, but some big companies, so, but, but big companies with, with enormous uh, user bases have more data. So Google has more data on what people search for and what people are going to click on when they make a search. Facebook has more data on what people like and what uh, you know, news stories resonate with them. So it's harder for other companies to compete, for other smaller companies to compete because uh, they don't have that rich, as rich a data set. Got you. Awesome. So, what what are you working on right now? I'm very curious. I know you're uh, working on a new book. Yeah. So the new book, you know, I kind of you know hinted at it with the parenting, block by block parenting and uh, study. But uh, the idea is basically that people make that we make bad life decisions in very important areas of life. So in choosing our careers, uh, trying to be how we how we go about trying to be successful, our dating decisions, our marital decisions, our parenting decisions. But that thanks to data, we have new insights and can dramatically improve uh, our decision making. So I'm going to kind of go through these different main areas of life that everybody cares about and say, what have we found from new data sets that you might not know that knowing this, you can make, uh, you know, better, smarter decisions. I kind of I call it money ball for your life uh, because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think, you know, just as I, I think while uh data has transformed baseball and now other sports and other industries. It hasn't had that big an impact on individual decision-making. Most people make the decisions the same way they always have following their gut, their, their, uh, you know, following their gut, kind of just getting some, some advice from a few people, but not really systematically analyzing data, uh, or even, you know, no, knowing the best data out there on these topics. So I'm hoping to change that. Uh, by showing kind of things that people might not know that kind of go go against their intuition that I think could lead to better life outcomes for them. So would that kind of be the advice you would give to regular citizens today? Like people like my parents, you know, who never really studied computer science and would never really get to learn about data analytics in, in the rest of their lifetime. So can people just gradually make up uh, for this sort of um, try to not fall too far behind in this era just by gradually learning a little bit more about data and reading more articles, being more mindful of those t- bits of um, things in life. Is that the advice you would give to people? Yeah, definitely. Like, 
uh, you know, reading kind of smart articles or smart books uh, or, or even just, get, you know, and, and then kind of following the advice in those books, because there really is kind of, you know, there, there, are, there are periods of life where I think a lot of, you know, advice books were kind of garbage. They weren't really <laughs> yeah. that much. But I think, you know, some books now really are, uh, you know, smart, data driven and credible. So I just, there's just a book that came out, Crib Sheets by Emily Oster, which is advice on the first three years of parenting. It just goes through kind of all that she's all the data science on parenting, you know, every study that's been written to kind of really make sense of what we know and what we don't know uh, on parenting. And I think it's just so much better than the traditional uh, books that have been written on parenting. And, I, you know, I want to do that with lots of areas of life to kind of, uh, you know, I, I think, yeah, just kind of show people uh, here's 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 kind of really what's going on, which may be very different from what you think is going on. Got you. Um, what about for young people uh, like me, kids who are still in college, do you recommend everybody to really study machine learning? Um, because so many people come up to me and say, Tiger, if you don't study computer science, uh, you're just never going to find a job as an economist, as anything, you know? Uh, I don't think that's totally true. I think, well, I do think knowing computer science is probably good, knowing how to code. I think just knowing how to code may be overrated because so many people are learning that now that it doesn't give you really an edge. I think people who have the edge will know how to code and do something else. They'll know how to code and also how to manage people, or they'll know how to code and they'll also know uh, economics or psychology. Uh, so I think just just focusing on coding or even machine learning or artificial intelligence uh, doesn't give you a huge advantage because uh, everybody's getting the same advice. Somet sometimes the best Sometimes the best thing to do is to ignore the advice that, that you're getting because, you know, uh, sometimes there are these, there are these, if everybody's getting the same advice, then probably most people in your cohort are going to follow that advice. So there, I think there's something to, if everybody's going one way, you go the other way, uh, th that could be advantageous. I wouldn't recommend that you study classics or comparatively get a PhD in classics or comparative literature because I think. Uh, you know, those <laughs> jobs are drying up pretty fast. But I do think that uh, you, you, it, it can be smart in your career if, you know, to not just uh, do what, 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 what everybody else is doing. Totally makes sense. Uh, do you have any plans next after finishing this next book? Are you thinking about going back to somewhere like Google? Because I know Amazon, Microsoft, Google, all those tech giants employ hundreds of PhD economists and, and data scientists and uh, or, or are you thinking about maybe going to academia, keep writing for New York Times? Do you have any future plans? Uh, uh, not, I'm trying to, I spend probably too much of my day thinking about that. That's beyond <laughs> the optimal level of thought on the topic and stressing about that and waking up in the middle of the night panicked about it. So I'm trying to just uh, kind of block that out of my mind and focus more on my, you know, getting this second book done. And then kind of, I've kind of found in my life uh, that just one good, you know, you kind of do something and it opens up another door and uh, just, I'm kind of trying to hope, just keep following that, that if I just, you know, keep moving forward and keep kind of producing things that I think are interesting, uh, I'll, I'll keep on getting, you know, interesting opportunities. Uh, so totally that, makes that's, sense. That's kind of my goal. I, I don't really, I've, I've never really had a five or ten year plan. I'm not gotcha. sure if that's that's smart, but it, it's definitely hasn't been my strat, my style. 
Got you. I have one last uh, big grand question for you, because uh, we were talking about uh, human nature. We were talking about uh, how data could help us correct some of the mistakes in life. I guess the broader question here I have for you is: Do you see a dystopian, or not even dystopian, just a future uh, where data makes all the decisions for us, and we are just, you know, organisms that just constantly absorb countless data bits and process them and we kind of fit into this grand scheme of things, but it's mainly, you know, we don't do much anymore. So where do you see the future in very, very long terms? How does data and us fit into this grand scheme of things? Uh, you certainly ask interesting questions. Uh, I think, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out. There definitely is a dystopian uh, vision where someone powerful uses kind of these tools of data analysis and artificial intelligence to get people to do things that are bad for that for themselves, but good for the people in power. Uh, I actually read an interesting book recently by Glenn Weil called Radical Markets. Yeah, and we, we had him good. on the show a couple months ago. Yeah, oh, Professor good. Weil. He was lecturing in Princeton. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe you already know this, but he has this theory that if that uh, one of the reasons capitalism was better than communism was because uh, because uh, commu it was really hard for it's hard for go governments to uh, it centralized powers like governments to choose to give people what they want. People generally know what they want better than somebody some bureaucrat uh, in the government uh, knows what they want. So you know in capitalism you get to choose the products you want, whereas in communism they give you kind of the same. Uh, choices that that you might not actually enjoy kind of this this uh, there, there's kind of this one size fits all uh, there are these one size fits all boring products uh, that the government offers you and he was saying that data analysis uh, big data and artificial intelligence is making that less true because one of the big lessons of data scientists frequently algorithms are better at predicting what you actually will like than you are that people frequently make bad decisions and uh, you know, their intuition is off. So it, it could actually uh, make communism, uh, something like communism or socialism, uh, more appealing that you could have something like from each according to his, uh, his abilities to each according to his needs uh, using d uh, data science and artificial intelligence. But it's, it's definitely a provocative argument. Yeah, my math professor has is, is, uh, told me about this idea of decentralized socialism not long ago. He said that could be something that could potentially work out. Yeah, uh, yeah. totally makes sense. Uh, so the name of our podcast is Policy Punchline. I really have to ask you at the end of our show, uh, what's the punchline here about data, the tech, policy, our society's future, anything? Uh, what's the what's your punchline? Uh, that there, that we're that I would say that. We're getting uh, revolutionary new insights into the human mind and into human society from all the data that's now available to study it. And it's hard to say whether it will be a dystopian or optimistic future. Uh, just We'll just have to see how we use those data. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to me today, Seth. It's uh, such a great pleasure to have you on the show. 
Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter at Policy Punchline. Uh, rate us and, and review us. Uh, that was our interview uh, with Seth. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Uh, and please uh, keep an eye out, eye out on his uh, next book, um, what he calls it, The Moneyball for Life. Thank you guys so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.